Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, public health for the public. My name is Dr. Philip Chan from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health. Our guest is an expert in psychology and on mental health. He's a practicing psychologist, as well as the incoming president of the Rhode Island Psychological Association. He's also the chair of the Department of Psychology at Bryant University. Dr. Joseph Trunzo, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So I've been a practicing psychologist here in Rhode Island since 2002. So I own a private practice. I have a couple of psychologists who work with me in that practice. In addition to that, I'm also a professor in the psychology department at Bryant University, and I serve as the associate director for our newly formed School of Health and Behavioral Sciences, which we're really excited about. And as you mentioned, I'm also the incoming president for the Rhode Island Psychological Association. So it's a lot of hats, but it's all kind of moving towards the same goal, hopefully, which is helping everybody to be healthier. Yes. Also, our goal here at the Rhode Island Department of Health. Let's talk about the basics for a second. So I think as we all know, mental health is really a crisis, not just in Rhode Island, but across the U.S., Talk to us a little bit about who's been most affected and maybe how that's changed during the pandemic as well. So things have been things were creeping in a not so great direction before the pandemic even hit. We were seeing significant rises in depression and anxiety really across all uh, ages and all spectrums, but primarily with uh, kids and adolescents. And I would say that the pandemic just accelerated that trend exponentially. Without question, I would say that the, the cohort of people who have been most affected by the pandemic as far as mental health is kids and adolescents to have that kind of disruption in their education and social development. It's just incalculable, the things that kids are having to deal with. I don't treat kids and adolescents, but it's so obvious, particularly you know, teaching in a college setting, I'm seeing the effects of some of these students who had to rise up through, uh, you know, getting a high school education that was largely remote. Um, some of the social difficulties that they have in terms of social development is just, as an adult, when you're largely through a lot of those developmental phases, yes, the pandemic was difficult and it hit hard, but when it, when it comes right at critical stages of development, whether that's early childhood, adolescence, late adolescence, young adulthood, it, it really, really creates a big problem. So as an adult primary care doc, I'm also seeing a lot of that and specifically ADHD as well, really a lot of ADHD, uh, a lot of uh, requests for Adderall and other stimulants. So you mentioned you're a, a practicing psychologist, seeing adults, as you alluded to, what are you seeing in your own office and practice here in Providence? So largely my practice, we see mostly people who have a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety. ADHD gets sprinkled in there. Substance use issues are obviously problematic, either as a core issue unto itself or people using substances to try to self-medicate their own depression or their own anxiety. So it's a lot of the stuff that we were seeing before, just a, a, a larger amount of it and with a greater with a greater intensity. Yeah. So Question for you. I think, as we all know, there's a lot of factors that contribute to a person's mental health. We think about relationships, family, social contacts, friends, finances, physical health. Broadly speaking, what do you think are the most important contributors to a person's mental health? Well, I mean, you just mentioned a lot of them. So good mental health, obviously, is a, it's a multifaceted and multifactorial construct. So 
you know, do you have good personal relationships? Do you have good family relationships? Are you happy in the work that you do? Do you feel socially connected to other people? Are you physically healthy? All of those things are important. I think that one of the biggest problems that we're facing is I think that people need to develop a greater willingness or the skill of being able to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think somewhere along the line, uh, culturally, we sort of adopted this mindset that if we're not happy, if we're not feeling great, if everything isn't absolutely perfect and we're not on cloud nine, then that means that something is wrong. And I don't think, I think people have lost the appreciation of experiencing the full spectrum of human emotion and our ability and willingness to, uh, to kind of sit through and move through difficult periods, which we're all going to have because pain and uh, difficulty, that's part of, it's part of being a human being. But for some reason, we've come to the conclusion that if you're in some kind of pain, then something must be terribly wrong and there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And that just couldn't be farther from the truth. So I think that if people were more willing and had a better ability to tolerate and move through and accept periods of discomfort, that would go a long way towards uh, towards helping with mental health. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One thing that you're reminding me of, myself, who's traveled widely around the world and, and been to a number of underserved countries and, and seeing how a lot of people across the world live. You know, one thing I'm reminded too is I think that Sometimes we lose a little bit of perspective, myself included, just about how good we really have it in America. You know, one thing I was reminded last time I traveled, I went to Brazil recently and just sometimes just paved roads, right? I think things we take for granted, right? It's like I'm driving yeah. down one of these roads and, it, you know, there's all these potholes and the actual cars were actually driving, you know, cars actually were driving on the side of the road because it was smoother than actually driving on the road. Uh, and just things like ambulances. And I was reminded as a physician in other countries, a lot of countries don't even have ambulance services. And one of the number one causes of death is just roadside accidents because they can't be transported to care. So I, I appreciate your point about maybe a little bit of perspective, but of course, always trying to understand. I can't even imagine certainly how some of my patients live from day to day. And I, I do believe that there is a lot of suffering certainly in this world, in this country. One thing that I see too, again, as an infectious disease doc, I see a lot of times how chronic physical disease can sometimes lead to really bad uh, mental health outcomes. And uh, you actually have written a book called Living Beyond Lyme, Reclaiming Your Life from Lyme Disease and Chronic Illness. And certainly it's an infectious disease doc, but I certainly cared for a number of Lyme patients. But tell us a little bit about the book and maybe in general about the connection between mental health and physical health. Sure. So I actually wrote two books. So there's that one. And uh, I adapted that book for helping people to cope with long COVID because there's actually a lot of overlap uh, in those uh, in some of those illnesses. So uh, look, if people are not feeling physically well and physically healthy, in other words, if they're not if they're not able to do the things that they want to do or that they need to do and they can't move about their life with uh, with relative ease, that can have profound impacts on their mental health and mental well-being. So um, they, they can start to judge themselves. They can start to feel judged by others. They, uh, they set up expectations for themselves that they might not be able to meet. Others might set up expectations for them that they might not be able to meet. There's all kinds of guilt, judgment, what the kids call FOMO, right? Or, you know, fear of, fear of missing out on things. And that can have a profound impact on one's mental health. It can drive a lot of depression. 
People can be very anxious about the future, what's going to happen with their physical health, what's their life going to look like. This isn't the life I planned for. This isn't the life that I wanted. Um, what is my life going to look like? Uh, am I going to be able to work? Can I have enough money to afford? Like all of these sorts of things. You know, the book's about Lyme disease, but it's really applicable to anybody who has any kind of, uh, of chronic illness, whether it's a physical illness or a mental illness. But it focuses on using a particular psychotherapy approach called acceptance and commitment therapy to use as a coping mechanism to help to deal with and move through whatever chronic condition someone might be experiencing and trying to have and experience a meaningful life while that's going on. I do a lot of work with a lot of people who have a lot of different chronic illnesses. And I think the biggest mistake that they make is that certainly at certain stages of the illness, they think to themselves, well, once I get better, I'll start doing X, or I can't do such and such while I'm feeling this way. And while there are certainly activities for which that's true, if you boil down what people used to do that was really meaningful and important to them and find the piece of that that was meaningful and important, and then uh, try to find some way that they can engage with that value in a way that they can do, it might not be what they used to do, but if you get down to the heart of it, then uh, they may be able to find some sense of meaning and purpose in their life again and be able to enjoy things. And it, you know, it's going to be different than it was, but extracting whatever piece of it that you can is going to serve you far better than just stopping your life and putting everything on hold until, uh, until you're quote unquote cured. Yeah, thank you for that very much. You know, let's talk about uh, this for a second as it relates to long COVID. This is something that we hear a lot about from the Department of Health and certainly myself personally. You know, a lot of people are suffering from, you know, a whole spectrum of symptoms related to long COVID. You know, the more we know, the more we know it's very common. There's not a lot of easy answers out there. Uh, as a physician, you know, it's frustrating for me personally when I can't treat the underlying cause. We don't know you know, what the underlying cause of long COVID is. We don't have any treatments for it yet. You know, sometimes I do, uh, you know, treatment's all symptomatic. And, you know, sometimes I do encourage folks to seek out some therapy and counseling. I guess one thing as a primary care doc that I get a lot of resistance to is the sense that a doctor like myself may think that it's all in a person's head, you know, and, you know, doc, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you treating me? You're just referring me to a psychologist. You know, I want to be treated for my long, long COVID. How would you respond for, to that? Or what would you tell folks who, who have that concern? I think that's really legitimate. It's a very legitimate concern because particularly in primary care settings or in medical settings, as soon as a medical doc wants to refer to, uh, to a mental health specialist, the interpretation on the patient's part might be, uh, they don't believe me. They don't think that I'm actually sick. They think that it's all in my head. Uh, you know, what's, what's a shrink going to do for me? Like all of those sorts of kind of like old stigmas. So I think as a physician, if you kind of really validate what the patient's experience is, acknowledge uh, the difficulty that they're having, and then frame the referral on the construct of, yeah, like we're going to keep working on, you know, on the medical side about, about trying to, trying to tackle this and to help you to feel better. But there are, there are things that, that mental health specialists can do that can help you cope and to live the best life that you can and to manage the stress and the difficulties around this illness while we're working towards, uh, towards a, a medical solution. So there's no reason that you can't do better and function better and feel better as you're trying to get well. 
You know, I really love that. That really resonates with me. And one of the reasons why I love doing these podcasts is because I always learn things too about the topic we're talking about. So I 100% plan to incorporate live the best life you can. I think that really just resonates with me. And I do try to, of course, listen to my patients and do whatever I can for my patients. And I really like that messaging uh, and that, that, uh, that talking point there. So thank you for that. Let's switch gears just a little bit and talk and uh, talk about something that you mentioned in the beginning about children and adolescents. So here at the Department of Health, every two years, we do conduct what's known as a Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And this is an anonymous survey sent to randomly chosen high schools in Rhode Island. So it's meant to be a representative uh, survey to give a snapshot really of how many students are participating in different behaviors or facing difficulties that impact physical and mental health. So let me just go over a couple of the highlights from this, and we'd love sort of your thoughts and insights on this based on what you mentioned in the beginning. So in 2021, the latest results in Rhode Island were that 38% of surveyed students experienced feelings of sadness or hopelessness, 38%. Uh, females, 52%, were twice as likely as males to report these feelings. And students who identified as LGBTQ, 66%, uh, reported higher rates of sadness than students who identified as heterosexual, 29%. So 66% versus 29%. And I know in general, as a parent myself, I have a 15 and 11-year-old. I am very concerned, as others are, about children's mental health, and especially moving through the pandemic here. Uh, what are your thoughts about these numbers and any advice for, in general, for parents who may be concerned about their children or teen? So the numbers, unfortunately, are not uh, they're not at all surprising to me. If anything, uh, some of them actually surprise they're as low as they are. And part of that just might be that like I'm in the business, so I'm a little bit skewed because it's like it's what I see uh, all the time. So as far as advice for parents, I'm going to answer this question as much as a parent as opposed to a psychologist. But I think that paying attention, being present and listening. So you know, everybody talks about screen time for kids and how kids like get swallowed up by their screens, whether it's the phone or video games or any of those sorts of things. But uh, parents and families as a whole are not immune to that. So we get swallowed up by screens too. And I think that if you think that your kids don't notice that, they do. So you want to really make an effort to make sure that you're paying attention to your kids, you're asking them questions. Um, checking in with them to see how they're doing. And then if they start talking, for goodness sake, uh, let them talk. <laughs> so as, as parents, we have, you know, because like we're older, we have more experience, we have opinions about things. We have a tendency to want to sort of jump in and just like try to solve problems, solve problems, solve problems. And that will shut kids down a lot. So I, I think good active listening making sure that your kids feel heard, making sure that they feel comfortable being able to share things with you. Um, try not to be overly reactive, which can be really hard as a parent because you worry about your kids and their safety and their well-being. And then uh, I'm, I'm going to pass along a piece of advice that a dear friend of me told me a long time ago as my, as my kids were, were coming into adolescence. And she just said, she said, the car is a great place to get them to talk. So as you're driving them places, right? Because there's not there's not direct eye contact. Everybody's just kind of like staring out the window. Um, and I've found this to be the case. Some of the best conversations I've had with my kids have been when I'm driving them to this place or that place. There's just something about that environment that makes it a little bit more likely that they'll open up. So 
shut off the Bluetooth, try not to make phone calls and all that kind of stuff. And um, even if it's just like, you know, telling them to, to play the music that they're listening to, and then you can hear that and then use that as ways to talk to them. The car is a great place to, to connect with your kids. You know, and I noticed that it's interesting you bring that up. I was noticing that month actually with my 15 year old daughter, you know, I realized, you know, a couple Sundays ago, I'd spent like two hours in the car driving my kids all around to their various events. But you know what? I was okay with that. And it did give me time one-on-one with my kids to chat. And I realized, you know, I hadn't had that time like all week. That was the most dedicated time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I appreciate that comment. Thank you. And uh, I, I will stop complaining about driving my kids around everywhere. <laughs> well, and you get the most information when you're driving your group with them around. So if they're in there with their friends and they just start talking and they forget that you're in the car, they, you like you listen up because that's when you're going to get a lot of good info. Yes, my daughter's entering that stage, 15 going on, uh, you know, 18 or 19 here. So in that little bit of a tricky time during adolescence, which I know a lot of parents struggle with. And I will give uh, a quick plug also for KidsLink RI. This is a free confidential phone line run by the state that connects parents and caregivers to an experienced clinician that can help them access children's services in Rhode Island and determine the best place for mental health treatment and counseling. And that number, it's available online, 855 543 Five four six five. So Kids Link RI again, um, Doctor Tronzo. Let's talk a little bit too about, and this is actually is why we asked you to be on the podcast today. I saw that you had written an interesting op-ed recently this past week uh, on the shortage of mental health care professionals in Rhode Island. And you and I quote, the wait list for my own group practice is now over a hundred people deep, and it just keeps growing. And I think per our conversation up to this point as we've both acknowledged just about the overwhelming need in general for mental health and how important it is. I mean, this is something that's experienced by, by patients, by people uh, unable to get in for therapists. It's something as a clinician, physician myself, that I struggle to refer patients to mental health because everything seems to be filled. How do we get out of this? What do we do? Well, this is obviously, that's a very complicated question. So there, there are many, many layers to that. And I think you know, we have to understand that there, there are different levels of mental health professionals. So you have master's level, level clinicians, you have doctoral level clinicians. Um, and Rhode Island actually as a whole, we have, we have quite a few behavioral health practitioners in the state, but we also have one of the higher usage rates of behavioral health services in the state. So there are two things. I think that, well, three things. Educating uh, behavioral health professionals, it's not easy and it's, uh, and it's expensive. So for example, getting into a, a clinical psychology PhD program, right? So if I wanted to get into a fully funded PhD program to become a clinical psychologist, that's a five-year program plus postdoctoral training. Statistically, that is the hardest type of graduate program to get into in the entire country. So they'll, they'll have applications for 600, 800, 600 applications for like one or two spots in a program per year. And there are a limited number of those programs. Uh, There are other ways that you can get doctoral training and to become a clinical psychologist that are more clinically focused and less research oriented. And those are great programs, but they're typically not fully funded. So that becomes a very expensive proposition upwards of, you know, a hundred plus thousand dollars for your education. And behavioral health professionals do not make the same kind of money that, that medical professionals do. So, uh, 
fixing some of the imbalance in pay, I think would, would help. And this is, it's about more than just like, you know, I want to make more money. It's about if you're spending that kind of money to get training, to be in healthcare, then you need to make sure you're able to pay off those loans or be able to live, uh, you know, to live a decent life and raise your family and so on and so forth. So uh, that's part of the problem. I think that medicine and behavioral health are far too siloed. This has gotten a lot better over the years. There's been a really significant and I think very good movement towards integrated behavioral health, where you have behavioral health professionals who are co-located, like actually in primary care practices. So when you have that patient who's having a little bit of difficulty, you can do the warm handoff to the, to the clinician down the road. That's a great thing to be happening, to have greater uh, collaboration between medicine and behavioral health. But again, as a, as a behavioral health clinician, working in a primary care doctor's office, I'm going to make significantly less money than I'm going to do if I'm out in private practice. So there are you know, issues around reimbursement structures and all those sorts of things that become problematic. So the third thing is that uh, in medicine, they've been able to create different reimbursement structures, accountable care organizations, those sorts of things based on outcomes, right? And in medicine, it's a lot easier to measure outcomes than it is in behavioral health. So if you're seeing a patient who's diabetic, you can look at their A1C and it was X when we started treatment, it's significantly lower when we ended treatment or as treatment progressed, that's a high quality outcome. Therefore, um, we, can, we can easily figure out a better reimbursement structure around that that's both gonna benefit the insurance company, the practitioner, and most importantly, the patient, because they're getting a higher quality of care. That is a much, much more difficult thing to do in behavioral health because our measurements for wellness are not as uh, easily accomplished as lower blood pressure or lower A1C or you know whatever the whatever the medical measurement might be. Measuring things like depression or anxiety or substance use, you know, we've made inroads on that, but we have a lot more work to do as a field to really prove our, our value to medicine and overall health. I think everybody knows and suspects that behavioral health, when integrated with physical and mental health, can have a huge impact and be cost-saving and help head off a lot of crises, but the actual data that proves that that's the case it has been pretty slippery. And I think that once we're able to do that, then we can make an argument for ourselves for having a, a bigger seat at the table or a seat at the bigger table, however you want to phrase it. And we'll make the field a lot more attractive for people to go into as they're going through their education. And I'll just stay at the state level. Uh, we are also working with uh, different organizations to help train and promote healthcare. I will say, certainly as a physician myself, you know, there's never a day that I second guess, you know, going into this field. I love healthcare in general. I think there's endless opportunities and just uh, amazing people in the field, both in public health and certainly in the medical field. And, you know, on that note, you're also a professor, as you mentioned, and chair of the Department of Psychology at Bryant University. Uh, tell us a little bit about Bryant University and, you know, what you do there on the academic side and uh, make the case for people to go into mental health. So I've been here at Bryant for, this is my 21st year. So I came here when we started the Department of Psychology uh, some 20 years ago. I've been really happy to, to play a part with my colleagues in seeing our department grow and the popularity of the major grow. I mentioned earlier in, the, in, the, in our talk that I wear a lot of hats uh, and I, I love every single one of them. I feel really blessed to be able to teach 
I feel really blessed to be able to do research and I feel really blessed to be able to do clinical work. And all three of those things inform the other. So I think I'm a better clinician because I'm a researcher and a teacher. I think I'm a better teacher because I'm a clinician and a researcher and so on and so forth. And I wouldn't change a thing as far as my career trajectory is concerned. And I'm actually happy to say that, you know, I'd say the majority of students that we have who are coming through the psychology major, which of course is a very broad field and not everybody who majors in psychology goes on to be some kind of clinician, but many of them are are very interested and dedicated in going into a helping profession, into working towards making uh, not just individual people's lives better, but our society better as a whole. Uh, they feel the same way that I did when I became an undergraduate major in psychology, where it's just like, I just wanna help people and I want the world to be a better place. I do not sense that that has changed at all. So we just need to do what we can to give those folks an easier path and to make it you know, as rewarding and challenging for them as, as it needs to be so that they can do what they're looking to do. You know, I really love that. I want the world to be a better place. You know, my message to my kids has been, I don't care what you want to do. Uh, you know, I'd like one of them to be a physician if you really pushed me on it. Uh, but I don't care what you do. Uh, but I do want you both to consider uh, doing something where you make the world a better place. And that, you know, if my kids do that, then I will be, I will uh, believe myself to be a successful parent. But thank you for all that, Dr. Trunzo. And our time is coming to an end here. But I do want to give you a couple moments here to say any final thoughts or leave any imparting wisdom on our audience here. Any final thoughts about mental health that you want to share? I would say just attend to it. So I think you need to do something every day to take care of your mental health and your well-being in the same way that uh, you know people are committed to exercising as many times as they can during the week. I think we need to do the same thing as far as our mental health is concerned. Breathe, relax, connect with people who are uh, who feel good and who are nourishing to you. Stay out of toxic relationships and um, do something every day for your own mental health and well-being. And it can be as, as little as five minutes. I would encourage as much as half an hour to an hour if you can swing it, but just make sure that you're, that you're doing something every day to, to keep your mind and, and your spirit in shape. That is great advice. I'll just share that uh, for myself. I run every day. I run Lincoln Woods almost every single day. It's a nice two and a half mile loop. So that's perfect uh, to get about 30, 40 minutes of exercising. And I'm reminded too that exercise is one of those critical parts of mental health. And every single study ever shows improved Pretty mental much. health benefits with exercise. You can get two so. birds with one stone with that one. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. I also just want to mention that Bryant University, the School of Health and Behavioral Sciences, is sponsoring a healthcare summit on May 6th. So this is designed for all different healthcare providers to come together and collaborate and innovate ways to improve our healthcare system in Rhode Island and nationally. And I want to remind people as well that there's a 24-7 hotline that you can reach out to if you're experiencing mental health or substance use crisis. In closing, I do want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, and Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Philip Chan, signing off from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all and be well.